Now, this morning, we're going to look at our PowerPoint verse for the month, appropriate, the only verse it could be, uh, our PowerPoint verse for the month of March, and that is in the Gospel of John, chapter 3. We're actually going to look at verses 1 through 21, but we will certainly highlight uh, the main event, so to speak, and that is John 3.16. Now, we've been kind of talking about Philippians being like a drive through the Avenue of the Giants or Monument Valley. Well, today, we're coming to Mount Everest. Or maybe I should say we're coming to Mount Zion. We are coming to really what the core and central issue of the whole of the Bible is, captured in but a single verse. Now, our verses today include the most well-known of all verses, but unlike the story of David and Goliath, and unlike the story of Daniel and the lion's den, which most people know or have heard of, the vast majority of people who have heard those two stories couldn't tell you where they are in the Bible. But interestingly, with John 3.16, a lot of people know the address, but they don't know the story. They don't know exactly what John 3.16 says, uh, but they have heard uh, that it's important. I, many of us, uh, I think, have watched in different sporting events. Uh, there used to be a guy called Superfan who wore a rainbow afro wig who always managed to get on camera who just held up the words John 3.16. And the whole world would see it at the Super Bowl or other events. Now, we could also say that if you only memorize one passage in all of Scripture, John 3.16 would certainly be a candidate of a worthy uh, choice for memorization. And this famed passage is actually part of a longer conversation that we're going to examine this morning, and a little bit of background will be helpful. Now, one of two, only two Sanhedrin that the Bible looks upon favorably is going to be the subject of our discussion this morning as he has a conversation with Jesus. His name is Nicodemus. The other Sanhedrin's name was Gamaliel. And he was one who said, hey, you know, leave these guys alone. If this is from God, we don't want to fight against it. So if it's not from God, uh, their teaching will go the way of every other false teaching. Now, uh, Nicodemus was also a Pharisee. He was trained in the law of God. And as a member of the San Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish ruling council, he was one of 70 men responsible for the religious decisions in Israel, and under the Romans, he was also responsible for civil rule or enforcing the law. It was the Sanhedrin who actually put Jesus on trial. Now, in John 7, 50 to 51, we're told about Nicodemus, the one who we'll read about today, who came to Jesus by night, said to them, his fellow members of the Sanhedrin, does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? And Nicodemus was pointing out, there's a whole lot of illegal things going on with the arrest and trial of Jesus. First of all, the defendant has a right to call witnesses. He was never allowed to do so. There were false witnesses called against him, but Jesus was not allowed to call witnesses. Second of all, a trial was not allowed to happen in the evening. Jesus was arrested at night and tried at night. And Nicodemus is saying, hey, wait a minute, guys, doesn't our law say that uh, we can't judge a man until we hear from him himself? And Nicodemus was the one dissenting voice among the 70 who were bent on railroading Jesus through a mock trial that ended in condemning him to death. Now we also find Nicodemus in John 19, 38 to 42, where we're told of Joseph of Arimathea being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus and who? Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. 
Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day for the tomb was nearby. Now, I've read this a couple of times over the years, and you know, there's no physical description of Jesus, uh, contrary uh, to what many people have hanging on the walls in their house. A surfer Jesus is not what Jesus looked like. And one interesting tidbit I've read a couple of times, as I said over the years, was bringing a hundred pounds of this myrrh and aloe mixture was uh, traditionally the half of one's body weight. So some say Jesus was a pretty big guy, probably weighed couple of hundred pounds. Whether that's true or not, uh, doesn't matter. Amen. <laughs> now, Nicodemus was a true follower of Christ. And, you know, much has been made of him coming to Jesus by night. It could be like Joseph of Arimathea. He was concerned about retribution from his fellow Pharisees in the Sanhedrin. It could have been that was the only opportunity that he could get to Jesus because of Jesus' heavy and busy schedule. And it could have been just an unplanned divine encounter, but the Bible doesn't say why he came at night. It just says that he did. But what we do need to understand is what happened that night that caused him to break with the ruling class of Israel, come and prepare the body of Jesus for burial, which would be a public act of defiance against what the Sanhedrin, the rulers of Israel and Pharisees, had done. Now, what happened that night is what we have titled our time for this month's visit to our word for the year, and that is what Nicodemus heard was the gospel according to Jesus. Our title is the gospel according to Jesus. And again, it includes the fame verse that most of the world knows of. And as we approach 316 day, I hope that our time is going to equip us for sharing the gospel by understanding all of its construct. And first of all, we need to note that the driving force behind the gospel is love. It is love that is at the heart of the gospel. It is love that is the motive for sharing the gospel. And it is love that causes a response to the gospel. So in a world where fear is the dominant force, in a day where wars and rumors of wars abound, at a time where the church is fractured and fragmented and uh, divided like never before, in a time where truth has become subjective instead of objective, including spiritual and moral truth, we need to know what the gospel is according to Jesus. And I'm thinking since Jesus is the central figure of the gospel, and since he is the expression of divine love that proves the gospel, maybe we should consider him as the ultimate expert on preaching the gospel. And so from him, we will find exactly what is true about the gospel according to Jesus. And as I said, we've got 21 verses to cover this morning, which is a lot, uh, kind of a break from our normal pattern. But would you stand and read with me, please, the first of our 21 Verses 1 through 8 from John chapter 3. John 3, verses 1 through 8. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly I say to you, 
unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Lord, we are grateful for our time in your text today. And we pray, God, that you would equip the saints for the work of ministry through our uh, discovery of what the gospel is according to Jesus and help us to model our own efforts after his. And Lord, I pray also for clarity and maybe some doctrinal housekeeping this morning as we make our way through this text. And we give you thanks in advance. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Now again, Nicodemus being named as a Pharisee and uh, the fact that he was a Sanhedrin is highlighted by the fact that Jesus said, or John says, he was a ruler of the Jews. Now Nicodemus says, we know, indicating that there were others among the Sanhedrin of Pharisees who actually believed that Jesus was the Messiah of Israel, the Mashiach ben David that they had all been waiting for. Now, in light of the fact that Nicodemus says, we know that you're from God because of all the things you do, Jesus tries to build a relationship bridge with, uh, with Nicodemus so he could have the right to share the gospel with him. Is that in your Bible? No. Listen. <laughs> Some of you are looking at me like, what are you talking about? Listen, that is one of the tactics of much of the church today. We have to build a relationship first. Listen, you don't build a relationship with someone who's drowning. You throw them a lifesaver, and the lifesaver is the gospel. You don't say, hey, where are you from? You tell them what they need to know. And that's what Jesus says. Nicodemus says, we know you're from God. Jesus says, you must be born again. Nicodemus says, no one can do the things that you could do unless they're from God. Jesus says, you have to be born again to see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus then replies, how is this possible? Can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born a second time? And Jesus says, again, unless you are born again, born of the water and the spirit, you cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Now, this born of water and the spirit statement has been interpreted multiple ways, including some have erringly concluded that you have to be baptized to be saved. Others take the biological approach and say that water speaks of our first birth or natural birth. And the second speaks of a spiritual birth, which is a good candidate for a proper interpretation. However, there's one other interpretation. It has some historical and theological validity, and that is water is looking back to John's baptism. John the Baptist uh, had a water baptism. Jesus' baptism was that of the Spirit. And John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, and being born again is the spiritual birth that also uh, is paired with repentance. We need to repent of our sins when we're born again. Amen? Now, either way, Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, this isn't something for you to marvel at. You believe other things you can't see, like the wind and its effects. So, too, this second birth is not a physical, uh, visible birth, but its effects are going to be visible, just like you see with the example through the wind. Now, in 1 Peter 1, to 25, Peter says, since you have purified your souls and obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been what? Born again. Not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, again, implying 
the rebirth of the Spirit, through the Word of God, which lives and abides forever. Because, and now Peter's citing an illustration, all flesh is grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls away, but the Word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the Word which by the Gospel was preached to you, the enduring Word of God, the unchanging Gospel of Jesus Christ. And Peter, though he once didn't get it, he now gets it. And here we see he too uh, pairs repentance, obeying the truth, with being born again. And he compares man to the grass and flowers, which are temporary, and says what God does in our hearts through his word and the preaching of the gospel is eternal. Now, here's where Jesus, I think, is taking Nicodemus, at least for our purposes this morning, uh, in their conversation, this opening part, that is. Listen, here's the first of three things I think we need to recognize and why it's important that we share the gospel. It's just this. Listen, there are no substitutes or alternatives for being born again. There are no substitutes or alternatives for being born again. Now listen, if you want to practice religion, just pick one. Pick the one you like. Pick the one that appeals to your flesh. Just pick one and practice it. But if you want to go to heaven, you have to be born again. It's not about just picking or selecting some religion that your nation favors or people in your family have long practiced. Nicodemus stated a fact. No one can do the things that you do unless God is with him. What he missed was Jesus is God. He is the second member of the triune Godhead. The Father is God, the Spirit is God, and Jesus is the Son of God. And Jesus, the Son of God, tells Nicodemus, unless you are born of God, born spiritually, you're never going to see, nor are you going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, Paul would tell us this in 1 Corinthians 15, 50. I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood, what's the next word? Cannot, cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. And again, we have to have that spiritual birth. Now, Paul would go on to make the point of 1 Corinthians that the human body is going to receive a major upgrade. I'm ready for that one, aren't you? In order to become eternally incorruptible, meaning to never age or die. Now, this is what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, that being born again is the only way to heaven. Being born a Jew isn't going to get you there. Being a Sanhedrin isn't going to get you there. Being a Pharisee isn't going to get you there. And listen, he is reminding, I think, all of us that church attendance and good works won't get you into heaven either. You must be what? Born again. Born again. And in, unless, which means there's no other way, you are born again, you will not go to heaven because you cannot go to heaven because you must be born again. Why? There are no substitutes for being born again. There are no religious achievements or anything else, and we'll talk about that in a moment, that can be a substitute for being born again. And I like what Jesus does here. When Nicodemus comes with his question, Jesus just cuts to the chase and tells him what he needed to hear. He may not have told him what he wanted to hear, but he told him what he needed to hear. You must be born again. Now, look at 9 through 16 as the conversation continues. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man, who is in heaven. 
And as Moses lifted up the servant, uh, serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not, have, should not perish but have eternal life. Read this out loud, please. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And Jesus responds to Nicodemus' inquiry with a gentle rebuke, asking him, listen, you're the teacher of Israel, you don't know this? And the implication is that regeneration and a second birth are found in the Old Testament. How else was Nicodemus going to find these things out? Unless they were recorded in the Word of God or spoken of by the prophets. And in Isaiah 32, 13 to 15, the prophet says, on the land of my people will come up thorns and briars, yes, on all the happy homes in the joyous city, because the palaces will be forsaken, the bustling city will be deserted, the forts and towers will become lairs forever, a joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks, until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and a fruitful field is counted as a forest. The prophet Ezekiel said this in 36, 25 to 27, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and all your idols. I will give you a what? A new heart and put a new spirit. There's regeneration within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit where? Within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Now, Jesus is including himself with the prophets and says, we speak and testify of these things, but you don't receive them. And if I've told you earthly things and you don't believe them, how are you going to understand heavenly things? And then he cites three examples of heavenly things. The incarnation of the eternally existent God and the Son, the substitutionary atonement for sin through being lifted up on the cross, and the eternal life that's offered to all mankind exclusively through Jesus. Now, Proverbs 34, we're told, who has ascended into heaven or descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fist? Who has bound the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is what? His son's name. The Bible teaches God has a son. And his son is Jesus, Yeshua, if you know. And in Daniel 9.26, we're told about a time after the 62 weeks, the Messiah shall be cut off. Remember, cut off is a Hebraism for killed, but not for himself. Did Jesus die for his sins? Did Jesus die for our sins? So he was cut off not for himself. He was cut off or killed for us. And then in Isaiah 60, verse 3, we're told the Gentiles shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. And we know today the church is predominantly Gentile and people are coming to the light of Christ. And the three heavenly things Jesus gave as examples were also things Nicodemus should have known as the teacher of Israel. Now, it's noteworthy that we don't read any more questions from Nicodemus from this point on. The next thing we find in Scripture is when he was questioning the Sanhedrin about their illegal actions against Jesus. And then after that, the embalming elements that he brought for Jesus' dead body and burial. Now, Nicodemus, I believe, from that had his questions answered, and he arrived at the same conclusion that Peter did at Caesarea Philippi, and that is that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Have you arrived at that? Yeah. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Amen? Amen? 
But notice that all his rituals and ceremonies and memorizations of Scripture he would have to do as a Pharisee. All the legal knowledge he would need to have as a member of the Sanhedrin didn't help him. He, too, had to be born again. And this gives us our second reminder about the gospel according to Jesus. Listen today. This needs to be heard in our world. There are no moral convictions or religious standards equal to being born again. There are no moral convictions or religious standards equal to being born again. Now, this is what the Mount Everest of all scriptures is saying. God's love for the world caused him to send his son to the world to die for the sins of the world. And belief in him is the only way to exchange eternal perishing for everlasting life. Being a good moral person can't create that exchange. Sincere religious commitment can't create that exchange. It is exclusive to those who have been born again through belief in him. And using Nicodemus as an example, we can see that belief impacts behavior. And he went from being one of the Sanhedrin and Pharisees to standing against them. He went from one who came to Jesus by night to one who unashamedly sided with Jesus publicly when he brought those spices uh, or the aloe and myrrh for Jesus' burial. Now in Luke 18, 9 to 14, we're told about a parable uh, about those who trust in themselves that they were righteous and despised other people. And Jesus said, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as a tax collector. I fast twice a, twice a week. I give tithes of all I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven. We talked about this guy last week. But he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a what? Sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone, say everyone, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And listen, the moral and religious person says, look what I've done. The born-again believer says, look what was done for me. And they embrace it with the whole of their heart, soul, and mind, as we learned a few weeks ago. Now listen, we have to underscore again that belief is not merely cognitive. And what we believe in every aspect of life impacts how we behave or how we live our lives. Listen, you may not be able to quote them all, but you live by Newton's, Newton's laws of motion every single day. It causes you to slow down around a sharp turn. You live by, even though we may not understand them and it can't be seen, we live by the law of gravity every single day. It's what keeps us from the edge of the cliff or the uh, uh, roof of a building or going too close to falling off. Now listen, here's something I think we don't uh, focus on often enough, and it comes from James, the Lord's half-brother, in 2.19. You believe there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and what? Tremble. You know that the demon realm believes Jesus exists? You know the demon realm believes Jesus died on the cross? You know the demon realm believes Jesus is the Son of God? And the differentiating factor between their belief and belief that changes your eternal destiny is repentance. A change of mind and life direction. We, Terry and I pulled up behind a car the other day that had a very familiar, I've seen I don't know how many of them over the years. It's a rather large uh, local church that has a, a mantra that people put on their license plate frames or they sell them at the church or something. And, and let me say this. Uh, it, it, I don't disagree with the statement. The statement is, is accurate. Uh, 
but it's incomplete. And what the statement was that we pulled up behind is you matter to God. That's what it said on the on the plate. You matter to God. Do we matter to God? Sure, God so loved the world, he gave. But here's the, here's the problem with that statement, I think, that, that makes it incomplete is the real question is, does God matter to you? That's the one that has to be answered. God loves the world and he gave his son. Yet to many that doesn't matter. Listen, this is going to be tough. You ready for this? You're not saved because God matters to you. Or you, I'm sorry, you matter to God. You're saved because God matters. I wonder why you're looking at me like that. You're saved because God matters to you. And, and listen, if we really think about this, he's unwilling that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance, 2 Peter 3, 9. And listen, of course we all matter to God. And God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He wishes that all would come to him. So listen, if we're going to say you matter to God, then we have to ask the question, does he matter to you? Uh, are you interested in what he has to say and how he has determined that your soul can be saved? You're saved by belief in him, not just the fact that he matters to you. Now look at 17 through, <laughs> you matter to him. <laughs> I'll get it right maybe at fourth service. We'll, uh, look at 17 to 21. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not, does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. Now, sadly, what follows the most well-known verse in the Bible is the most frequently misappropriated and misunderstood verse in the Bible, and that is John 3.17. God did not come into the world to condemn the world. And I see that quoted all the time. You see it all over the place in social media and somebody throwing that verse up, you know, that uh, God didn't come into the world to condemn the world. But this should remind us that the importance to understanding and interpreting any scripture is context. We cannot simply isolate a verse and use that to establish a, a belief for a biblical doctrine. Because the fact is, verse 18 interprets verse 17 if you keep reading. Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world because apart from belief in him, the world was already condemned. The world didn't need to be condemned. The world needed to be saved. And what the world needed was exactly what Jesus came to do and be. And Jesus tells Nicodemus that light has now come into a world where darkness is loved more than the light. One of the commentators regarding these verses said something I thought was interesting. He said, light does illuminate, but it also casts shadows. And if you think about it, when the sun's behind you, it casts a shadow in front of you. And therefore... Uh, yes, light illuminates, but it doesn't illuminate everything if we use that illustration. And the meaning is that light has come into the world in the person of Christ and exposed the fact that people love darkness. And we live in a world where darkness is increasing seemingly moment by moment. Now, First John 1, 5 to 7, John the Beloved says this. Now, remember, he heard Jesus teach for three and a half years. He heard every message he gave. 
He traveled with them. He saw him interact with humanity. He heard the Sermon on the Mount probably more than once. He listened to all that Jesus said, and he concluded this. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we what? Lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. There's a condition there when you find the word if. If we walk in the light, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us. And Jesus here says, everyone who practices evil hates the light. Now remember, the word practice means to perform repeatedly or habitually or to live in an evil uh, state of darkness. Now the life of believing in Jesus is in direct contrast to this. It's walking in the light and not in the darkness. Walking being an idiom for living out your life. And we need to be careful here. Note that light has come and people come to the light and light and darkness here, at least on the human side, pertain to our deeds or how we live. The point is, deeds don't save us. Amen? Deeds don't save us. And light has come into the world in the person of Jesus Christ, and he is the one who saves. And I think what Jesus is doing here with this rather lengthy dialogue, uh, pretty much one-sided as he is talking with Nicodemus, is he's closing the loopholes in Nicodemus' thinking. Because he, Nicodemus, like Paul and all the Jews, had been raised thinking keeping the law could save you. And Jesus is not denying that works or deeds are important, but rather he is establishing for Nicodemus that they are the result of salvation, not the cause of it. And this is why John would also say in 2, 1 and 2, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, which is who? Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now, we have to interpret what John is saying through the lens of you must be born again. And that means that while the blood of Christ is sufficient to pay for the sins of the whole world, there's still a human responsibility to believe in order to be saved. And thus this growing belief and popular belief in the church today of universal salvation that everyone goes to, se- goes to heaven is soundly and easily refuted just by John 3.16, if nothing else. Now, I'm sure that some of you, how many have heard of the phrase limited atonement? Some of you have heard of that? Well, let me explain to you what limited atonement is. Basically, it's the belief of the Calvinists that Jesus died only for the sins of the elect. He didn't die for the sins of the whole world. Now, there's a problem with that. Because that means that 2 Peter 3.9 isn't true. That he is willing that some should perish. As a matter of fact, he picked who would. And that's inconsistent with John 3.16, that God so loved the whole what? world that he gave. He died for the sins of the whole world. And that's why Jesus could say, consistent with the theology of the Bible, whoever comes to him, not only the elect can come, but whoever comes to him will be saved and receive eternal life. Listen, I I think of of the the five uh, uh, tulip is how it's described, the five pillars of Calvinism. I think limited atonement is probably the most dangerous thing to teach, to limit the atoning power 
of Jesus' blood is not something we want to have in our uh, gospel sharing. And, uh, you know, there's so many elements of that that I think, you know, become problematic even in evangelizing. Why would you go evangelize somebody that God says is going to hell? And how will you know who's who? You can't. So I think the blood of Jesus is sufficient to do exactly what the Bible says. And you can't say that, you know, Jesus dying for the whole world is the whole world of the elect because then you're inserting something into Scripture, which is something that is forbidden. We don't want any additives. It's actually a practice called eisegesis. It's not exegesis where you're interpreting the text. You're inserting something into the text to fit your own particular ism uh, or set of beliefs. And we don't want to do that. Amen? Well, listen, here's the last thing I think we need to consider concerning the gospel according to Jesus. Listen this morning. The only people who can't be saved are those who choose not to be. The only people who can't be saved are those who choose not to be. If you choose not to believe on Christ the Savior and Lord, can you still get into heaven? If you choose not to be born again, can you still get into heaven? But didn't Jesus just say to the teacher of Israel, unless you're born again, you're not getting in? Now, those who say that hell is unfair or disproportionate response for rejecting Christ have no say in the matter because Jesus' blood was sufficient to cover their sins as well. And Jesus made it clear that choosing not to believe leads to perishing, which means the second death. And again, those who do not come to the light choose to live in darkness. This is the very thing that Joshua said in his farewell address to the nation. Choose this day whom you will serve. You want to serve those pagan deities on the other side of the river? Or you want to be like me in my house who will serve the Lord? Make the choice today. And people are still choosing darkness over the light today and they are growing in numbers sadly and therefore we need to be out there telling people about jesus amen now that was a really weak amen to what i said now listen romans 8 or 1 18 to 21 we're told that the wrath of god is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because what may be made known of god is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, speaking of the triune nature of God, so that they are without what? Excuse. Excuse. Because although they, what's the next word? Big word. Although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. I've always found it amazing that in uh, Revelation chapter 6, we find, you know, the uh, people, they're, they're all walks of life that are described there, the great men, the mighty men, you know, the, the poor, all those are described as hiding in the rocks of the mountains, crying out for them to fall on them. And it doesn't say, because we don't know what's happening. We're not sure what's going on. They cry out and say, hide us from the wrath of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. They know there's a God. They believe there's a God, but they just choose not to be born again or to repent of their sin. And you find that repeated later in Revelation as well. They didn't repeat of their sorceries or murders or adulteries or any of those other things. Why? Because they love darkness. Even in a world that's being catastrophically destroyed by the hand of God, they still choose darkness. Are we getting closer and closer and closer 
to that type of world today? Things are getting more bizarre, more wicked, more evil. And listen, no one can say the evidence of God was insufficient for them to make an informed decision. For since the beginning of creation, God has made himself known through creation. This kind of stuff just can't happen. And listen, to believe that the universe can create itself and came into being through undirected natural causes is on the same level of ridiculousness as saying men can have babies. It just can't happen. And the evidence is overwhelmingly against it. So there's no excuse for rejecting God's plan of salvation. And the only reason anyone ever does is they love darkness or evil. Now listen, one thing we need to wrap up with here this morning is that Satan has done quite the job at painting an inaccurate picture of evil. And he has wrapped it completely with sinister and vile things and things that everyone, even the unsaved, would recognize as being evil. Remember what Paul said to the church in Corinth. You know, there's something going on in the church that the pagans would even condemn. And here you are all puffed up thinking that you're walking in grace by not saying anything about it. And there are certain things that even the world would recognize as being vile and evil. Now, how he has now packaged evil and how he has now promoted this picture of him with the red jumpsuit and the pointed tail and the triton pitchfork and all these other pictures of him. <clears throat> you know, the Bible actually says when we see Satan, we're going to say, this is the one? That's him? We're told he was perfect in wisdom and beauty until iniquity was found in him. He's tried to portray this picture of himself that is inaccurate. So when people would see something that doesn't look like that, they wouldn't think it is him or of him. Now, let me include some things that are evil and vile that have been packaged as positive and good. And that is everybody should be able to love whoever they want in a sexual relationship. Everybody should be able to do what they feel or be what they feel and not biologically are. Everyone should be able to marry. All religions should be viewed as valid. These are viewed in our world today as positives, positives, positives. But what we need to recognize is that the word evil that Jesus uses here means to degenerate from its original value. And that's what we've been watching society do. And what that means is, listen here, you still here? Listen, that means to redefine marriage according to the Bible is evil. To deny that there are only two genders is evil. To diminish a baby in the womb to fetal tissue is evil because all of these things degenerate those things from their original value. And the very first thing God did over humanity was that he held a marriage ceremony with Adam and Eve when there were only two people on the earth. It is the one ordinance that took place before man fell. He married them, so it is perfect in every capacity. And our world today is trying to change it and say there's other forms of marriage that are equal in value as biblical marriage or the ma uh, marriage between one male and one female, biological male and female, that is. And listen, to diminish a baby to just an unorganized group of cells when for millennia, any thinking person would walk up to a woman who was obviously pregnant and then would say, when is your baby due? 
We don't say that anymore. It's just fetal tissue that, you know, until some would say until it actually breathes air outside of the womb, it's not really a human being. And, you know, it's kind of funny that uh, when Elizabeth and Mary had an encounter, uh, there were a couple of human beings inside those wombs. One was John the Baptist and the other was Jesus. And listen, all this is evil, and yet it's packaged as good today. These are evil practices. They are the beliefs of the unregenerate, and yet all the unregenerate can still be born again through belief in Jesus. Amen? Now, in John 6, 30, 35 to 40, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will, no, I will by no means cast out. That's great news today. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that all he has given me I should lose nothing, but I should raise it up at that last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have what? Ever lasting life, and I will raise him up at that last day. The word everyone in the Greek means everyone. It still means everyone. Everyone who sees the Son for who the Bible says he is and believes in him will have everlasting life. And the answer to the universalists and their accusation that hell is inconsistent with a God of love is invalidated by the fact that nobody has to go there. And all who do go there choose it for themselves. And the God, you know, there's been a lot of debate over the years. I've heard it said, you know, God doesn't send anyone to hell. And well, yeah, he kind of does after the great white throne judgment because he basically sends them there because that's what they chose. Now, listen, the gospel according to Jesus is you must be born again. The gospel according to Jesus is anyone can be born again except those who choose not to be. Sounds like a lot of double talk that's coming from politicians today. And uh, I'm sure some of you have seen some of these things, you know, regarding the pandemic and all. You know, you need to uh, quarantine for 10 days unless you only want to for five days. Don't go to work unless you have to. You should always wear a mask unless you don't need to. I mean, it's just, who knows what's going on? But listen, uh, that's not doublespeak. God is not going to save those who reject him. God is not going to save those who don't want to be saved. And anyone can be saved except those who choose not to be, those who reject him. And again, it is true, you matter to God. But the question is, does he matter to you? And Jesus said in Matthew 12, 30, he who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. And listen, if you're against him, he's not going to force you to be with him for all of eternity. And heaven is exclusive to those who believe in him for eternal life. Those who choose not to have chosen hell over heaven, and they go there for a reason. And it's not that God is disproportionate in his response or inconsistent with his claim to be love. And I mentioned this before, but I think we'll throw it in now. You know, the Bible only says God is love two times. The Bible says God is holy 400 times. So we need to be focused on the holiness of God and the fact that sin cannot stand uh, in his presence. And therefore, that's why we have to understand the positional reality of being in Christ, being positionally in Him, is what makes us capable of standing before God because we are in Christ. And His past record of sinlessness has then been placed into our account, and therefore we can stand righteous 
before him. And if that hasn't been done for you, how can you stand before God? I mean, that's the very question that is asked by those who are hiding in the rocks and the mountains, calling on them to hide them from the wrath of him who sits on the throne and the Lamb. And they come to this conclusion, who's able to stand? Nobody. You can't stand before God unless you're standing in Jesus. And you can't stand before God in Jesus unless you've been born again. And that's the gospel according to Jesus. And I would consider him to be the ultimate expert on preaching the gospel, wouldn't you? Bow your heads with me, please.